Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. I'm sure many of our listeners know at least one or two people living in China, perhaps family, friends, or even colleagues. For many of them, if they left China or were outside China when COVID hit, they had a long wait before being able to return. Some decided to take extended vacations and waited out in a place like Bali. Some decided to relocate for good back to their home country. And others, like today's guest, have been itching to get back to China, and over the last few months, many have finally been able to, all of them having to quarantine for the 14-day minimum requirement. Today, we bring back the co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies, Jacob Cook, to tell us what it's like going back, going through quarantine, what has changed, what hasn't, how are they tracking everyone, and what we can look forward to in what has to be a very difficult time to try and predict what the future looks like for cross-border business, commerce, travel, and trade. Enjoy. A lot's being tied to Jack Ma's speech at the regulators, and that's why this was banned. And I really don't see that being the case. Just the way things work over here, it's not as top-down as people would like you to believe. I don't think this has anything to do with Jack Ma potentially saying something that was offensive to somebody. It really probably is more to do with reserve requirements. And probably what they're more worried about is the peer-to-peer lending part and the microfinancing part. And because there's been a lot of failures and a lot of fraud in that industry, it probably does make sense that the regulars do want to have a crack at this before they have an IPO. I think that makes a lot more sense. And they simply kiboshed it because of something he said at a speech. I mean, he's he's been outspoken. He's always been outspoken. There's plenty of other ways that, to deal with them, um, especially considering, you know, there's probably a lot of influential people here that are tied into that IPO as well. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jacob, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on, bud. Thanks for having me. High level. You've been out for eight months. Now you're back in China. What's it like? Coming back when things are back to normal here was uh, pretty interesting. So for the first time, um, and you can probably relate still being in North America, uh, you feel like the pandemic's over. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to share that with a lot of people and, and what the light at the end of the tunnel is going to look like. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's no more precautions. Business travel is back on domestically. Uh, people are back at malls, restaurants, nightclubs, all that stuff is back open. So, uh, yeah, it feels great. Wow. Okay. That's awesome to hear. Any major surprises, changes, anything that you've been met with since you've been back? Well, I think there's obviously been some changes. I mean, some of the local businesses uh, didn't make it on the smaller side of things, but not as many as uh, as probably would have been expected. Um, you know, a lot of those were probably marginally hanging on even before the pandemic anyway. Um, but a lot of digitization is is really happening as well. That whole push, uh, you know, to get online. Now everybody's doing it. Um mm-hmm. 
you know, some examples that, uh, you know, were given on a couple of my interviews on Bloomberg too. Again, you know, you now see the much older generation buying things online and getting it figured out. And it's not just, uh, uh, the young people doing it for them. So it really has encompassed all parts of society now. Um, and we really sort of have full digital penetration here. As you came back, even thinking about airports and and flights and taxis and things like that, are you seeing any precautions even at the supermarket or the schools that your kids go to? What what's going on over there? Like, is it, can you kind of measure and tell us a little bit about what the precautions are going on in China? What are they doing over there compared to maybe what you were experiencing or seeing from when you were over here? Well, two main things. One, um, the mask culture was already in place, you know, for like the last 10 to 15 years anyway, because of pollution levels. So it wasn't a big ask to, you know, for people to continue to wear those masks. And they are today still as well. I mean, you're on the street, you're probably 90% of the people are still wearing masks, even though there's actually no reported cases. But number two, uh, contact tracing. So one of the first things I noticed, you know, when I came back is I'd always put my phone next to my bed with my alarm clock and I would get up in the morning and it would be dead. And, you know, being the software engineer that I am, I finally realized that the contact tracing apps are so active that they're constantly communicating with every other device around it so that if there ever was an outbreak, it would be very quickly traceable. And we've seen that with you know, the minimal outbreak that they had in Qingdao about a month ago, everybody who was around, anybody who was exposed was very quickly identified and isolated. Um, and we don't have any uh, social distancing. Of course, that's not going to be impossible uh, in a country with the population of China. <laughs> yeah. um, so that that's not happening. But those first two are definitely in full effect and seem to be very efficient, let's say, at, uh, at, at reducing the spread. How aware are you beyond even that and, and dig into that a little bit like what does it say on your phone how do you know that it's working what what is almost the ui ux that you're fronted with is it just like a green screen red screen kind of like thing like are there restrictions on your movement how now now that you're out of quarantine do you fully feel free the first 14 days when you come into the country is quarantine i mean that that's tough i don't think i was quite psychologically prepared for how tough that was going to be um my plan you know, immediately I had ordered all the amenities and found out very quickly I wasn't going to be allowed any of that. Um, so I had to tough out that for sure. But in terms of um, the, the app, you have a code and it's different in every province. So when you go into Nanjing, for example, you'll download the code and it'll ask for your travel history. And if you haven't been anywhere that um, is of concern, it'll go green and you'll need that to check into your hotel. You'll need that to enter certain public buildings uh, in ride sharing. The drivers are usually showing that with you right away. And it's, it's, it's polite to show your code back. So everybody feels safe. Um, but when I was in quarantine and when I arrived, my code was yellow, which means my movements and activities were restricted. I wasn't allowed to leave. Um, and in the case that, you know, I was around somebody who had a problem, then the green would go yellow and I would be put back into isolation. And that's how it works. Wow. It feels like some sort of sci-fi movie. Uh, honestly, if we look back now, it's just been normalized. It's exactly. It's just normalized. But if you were to look at that, um, yeah, if you were to look at that uh, maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago, it would probably seem pretty weird. But it, it, it's just completely and totally normal here now. OK, so we've, that's discussing movement of people. What about movement of products? First of all, let's talk about purchasing behaviors. You're back at work. You're back in the fold. What about purchasing behaviors? What changes are you seeing? How uh, how is the way people have bought products, move products changed at all? 
Well, e-commerce is booming. Um, you know, the first real sign that we saw was in June when the 618 sale launched. Uh, the numbers that Tmall was reporting were absolutely insane. I think 133, $134 billion, uh, during that festival, which was a full three-and-a-half-fold increase on the year before. Wow. Uh, as we're recording this, it's a day before 11-11. Um, obviously, this is another massive shopping festival that is entirely uh, encompasses the, the whole country now, too. Um but people are back online. We saw also with the October uh, holiday, the National Day holiday, that hundreds of millions of people traveled. So there really is pent up demand. Um, and I've been trying to explain this to people in other countries that the light at the end of the tunnel is going to be a massive uh, consumer boom because there just is pent up demand all over the world right now. Do you think that's China focused or China centric? Or do you think that after these major lockdowns, You'll see in other parts of the world, and and I apologize for putting you on the spot for something that maybe you're you know not the most you know qualified expert to ask on. But when we see Germany come out, France come out, England come out, could could we expect similar thirst and hunger for the same types of things that that China has seen to kind of come out and have? Well, if we follow the patterns that have happened, I mean everything from the lockdowns that started. Every country has sort of matched this behavior. But, you know, once this is really and truly over, yes, there there is going to be a lot of pent up demand, um, especially as governments have stepped in to really mitigate the economic damage from a, a, a consumer level and, and, you know, with employment insurance and various other programs. Can you speak to unemployment in general and just kind of quickly cover, uh, was it, is it fully rebounded? Was it 50% rebounded? And maybe what you know about as far as how the, how the government stepped in to help everybody recover quickly? Quite a different approach to what we see uh, happening in Canada, where I was writing out most of this. Um, we and, and probably in the States, too, what we've seen is a lot of bailouts for companies. Um, and that's actually not what happened here. Most of the companies uh, were allowed to fail, but there was a lot more investment put into new companies and new ventures. Um, so that funding became more available. So hiring is... Um, I mean, we're booming internally, our organization, we're hiring um, almost, you know, I think six or seven, almost a week right now here uh, to deal with our growth and expansion. Um, but we're, we're seeing that a lot as well. I mean, the job ads that are out there, um, it, it's a pretty strong uh, labor market here, certainly in the big cities. Um, it, you know, there's going to be transitions in manufacturing and especially uh industries that were dependent upon export markets. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot of uh, reports that those are still suffering. But in terms of the growth, um, especially in like the technology, biomedical sectors, these it, they're, they're booming right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Expand on that. I would love to I would love to hear more about what sectors are doing really well post COVID here uh, and, and which aren't. Well, there definitely has been a change in consumer behavior. Um, one of the things that we've seen actually hold through is people are spending now a lot more of their uh, income taking care of themselves. So personal health, cooking at home, um, investing in their appliances, their kitchens. Uh, these are all things that are really booming right now. Um, not so much in terms of like the gyms and yoga studios, but as people go out and, and regain that confidence, that's probably going to happen a lot more. But home exercise equipment, the vitamins, the nutraceutical markets, uh, all of these are, are way, way, way up over last year. As one of the hardest hit industries due to COVID, the travel sector, right? And you just did some travel. Has it completely bounced back, would you say? 
Well, the hotel that I stayed at, uh, usually the Intercontinental in Nanjing has now been booked up twice. I am having probably more difficulty booking flights and train tickets than I did before I left. So absolutely, it's back uh, to pre-pandemic levels. Wow. Yeah. And you were saying that there was just, you know, a lot of travel still just with the national holiday that happened at the end of October there or end of September there. Um, It just seems like people are really willing um, to to travel and that there really hasn't been any kind of restriction or hiccup there. Not at all, which actually surprised me because I think what we, you know, as business people figured out is that we could probably get a lot of our work done over these Zoom calls and a lot of these client meetings weren't totally necessary. so I was kind of wondering just in the back of my mind if business travel was ever going to come back to 2019 levels. But if mm-hmm. China's any indication, um, yes, it is. It's interesting uh, because obviously it is changed. And I, and I think there is a cementing or a, a permanency uh, that is starting to take place where you're seeing um, you're seeing it reflected in the commercial real estate industry. Uh, obviously, you're seeing it on the on the tech side of things, tech security side of things, obviously with Zoom and, and all the rest of them. Has China experienced similar, let's call it, industry outcomes? You know, certainly the the software was always on the rise, um, even before pre-pandemic levels. I think so. I think that absolutely collaborative softwares are more in play across all businesses. Is there adoption rate 100% yet? Probably not. There's probably a lot of room to grow. It's also, I think, more fragmented. I mean, what we kind of see in the West is Microsoft Teams really taking the lead. Mm. Um, but Alibaba has a competing product. WeChat Tencent has a competing product. So we probably really haven't seen a clear winner. And of course, Microsoft is is fully entrenched in market as well. People's behaviors are definitely changing. Maybe not as much as I would have expected, though. Certainly maybe not as much, I think, as is happening in the West. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's kind of been a, a bit of a cultural revolution where uh, I think companies are starting to see, well, you know, we we're actually haven't dipped as much as we thought we might with everybody being at home. It's actually worked out. There's been a few positives and upsides from it as well. And now we don't have to pay those rents that we were paying for the commercial real estate, uh, especially what they would have had to do to kind of meet the standards for or for sanitization and, and, and distancing protocols to get people back into the offices. Did any of that happen? Just you know, just from the point of view of a commercial real estate point of view, was any of that in play? Did any of that happen? I mean, is it a culture of people going to an office and has that changed? It didn't change as much as I expected. I mean, mm. coming from Vancouver, there definitely is going to be a collapse in commercial real estate. Um, certainly people have figured that out, that they can work and be as productive at home. Probably what's going to happen is a balance of work at home and work at the office. But um, getting stuck in those commutes is is not enjoyable to anybody. But, you know, I was, to be honest with you, I was coming back expecting to find deals on commercial real estate here, like you would have uh, been finding in certainly the cities that I was uh, at in North America. Um, And nope, (laughs) not at all. And especially in the AAA buildings, prices didn't drop at all. We looked probably have found something to uh, fulfill our expansion needs in Beijing, but we're certainly not getting um, a stellar deal on it. And basically the same in Nanjing. I mean, we just uh, finished our campus there uh, in January this year. Now that whole complex uh, is is completely full. So I don't think the work at home culture is really going to, to happen here. And there's probably some 
differences that aren't even cultural. I mean, people live in smaller apartments here. Um, they live with more family members around. It's probably harder to get even just an office, whereas opposed to people that were living in the suburbs in a five bedroom house, it's not hard to carve out a space that could be potentially a, an even more productive office for people. So I think you got to look at that. Um, and, and people also are moving. I mean, the condo market is collapsing in North America as well. People are moving out of apartments into homes, you know, to, to accommodate these changes. So you're seeing that there and, you know, living in a house in China, there's just simply not the space for it. So we're probably not, not going to see that here as well. I think, I think offices and certainly what we're seeing are still going to be, um, you know, very primary. I wonder if that even has something to do with the fact. I mean, I love being at home because, you know, I'm from a North American culture and I cook a lot at home. I have lots of food here. I, you know, I don't, you know, in, in China, as we know, people eat out almost most meals, right? So you're already having to leave your home to go eat anyway. Uh, you might as well just go and hang out at the office for a while as well. I think uh, for those of you who are interested looking forward a little bit, we actually have a podcast that we recorded and are in the process of releasing soon with Simon Zhao, where we talk about the housing bubble in its entirety. So for those of you interested in a podcast around the housing bubble in China, make sure you pay attention. Uh, we'll be releasing that one on the negotiation very soon. Back to talking about what's going on in China. As we head into this kind of global holiday season, uh, closing out 2020 and then moving towards Chinese New Year, what sort of economic performances are you expecting from China and their consumers? Well, I think um, we're seeing growth relatively in line with um, the government numbers. I, I think, you know, there's so many data points out there that I think that the, uh, you know, the fudging the numbers and the, that sort of thing has really been put to bed. Um, you know, uh, cities especially. And I think, you know, one of the stories that we've been obviously following for the last, you know, couple of years is the growth really in, in third and fourth tier cities. But, uh, you know, four of the top richest cities now in terms of per capita income are in Jiangsu province. And that growth is really going to extend. Like, I, I mean, even being out so long and, and the capital of Hunan, I mean, Wuhan and these other cities, the growth is just still, it's still just incredible. So there's still a lot of economic drivers, certainly in, you know, for the next three to five years that are going to be able to support these growth numbers. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, uh, there's no reason not to, not to doubt what's going on now. I mean, some areas, you know, real estate might be coming to a, a head, but again, well, I'll leave that for some of the other guests that, that are more, uh, qualified to speak on that. But in terms of the consumption patterns and certainly online, um, I mean, the growth is is good. We have a, an entirely new platform now that has eclipsed 100 billion at market capital and pinned wall to wall. Um, so we've really gone from two players to three players. And in that whole time, none of their individual GMB numbers have gone down. So it's been almost entirely incremental growth. Um, and it's not to say that there won't be more that are coming into this sphere as well. We are now somewhat post-election in the U.S., okay? So now for organizations that can kind of maybe, and, and I think with everybody, start to slowly move on, accept um, what's happened, and now we're looking to prepare ourselves for the next few months, uh, what's going to transpire as, as, as things continue to get sorted out. And regardless of the outcomes and, and, and who actually stays in power, how can companies, what is your recommendation to companies to make sure that they are well positioned to succeed in China, despite what might be happening if their home base is in the U.S.? 
In terms of what we were following, and, and you know, the trade war was not going to be good. I mean, it, it, with all of these things, there's no real winners at this. I mean, you know, businesses and consumers and companies and jobs do suffer. You know, through the whole thing, we never really saw reductions in trade. So even you know, increasing taxes or what have you in already a high tax environment never really reduced the flow of goods. The taxes that were put on American goods coming into the markets, you know, had some effect, but there was already really high import duties. The VATs are quite high in China. And then, you know, going the other way, I don't think there was a single month, and I could be corrected on that, that trade from China into the U.S. went down at all. So I don't think it's really going to affect anything as much as the media would have you believe. You know, life life's going to go on, basically, either way. If you were all in, uh, you know, as a retailer, as a company, going to China, you should still be all in on going to China, correct? Well, absolutely. It's a ginormous market. Um it, it, it and and you know there's a lot of data. Yeah, I think one of the things you were asking me too before in that previous question was about the approach. Um, <clears throat> not only get all in, but understand you know the market in its entirety. I mean, this is such a big market, but that also means that there's a lot of data out there. So when you're thinking about those decisions and going in there, um, you know you can use big data platforms to really download and analyze uh, those market conditions, understand the size of your market, understand what the competition looks like, understand the price points that people are paying for those products. And if you found a really good niche that's going to work here, then it's going to go and it's going to work relatively quickly. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you're turning around goods that are already made here and trying to sell them at 10 times the cost, then you've got to figure out a, a better strategy and a better approach to be able to uh, to be able to compete here. It's not, um, you know, that everybody wins, but if you've got really good data and you've got a really good analysis, then um, you're going to do really well here. WPIC itself has invested a tremendous amount and opened up a big awesome brand new campus in Nanjing. Tell us about the campus. Tell us about why the campus. Tell us about what people can expect from it. Tell us about the live streaming studios, which are awesome. Uh, Explain a little bit about that investment and why you went down that path. Well, certainly, um, I I can't say enough about the city of Nanjing. Not only is it a very education-focused city, but um, we've done a lot of really creative things. So if you looked at 10 years ago, People still from Nanjing were going to the bigger cities, um, uh, you know, to find jobs into Shanghai. But we've always known with the growth and what's happened there recently, it really is a major up and coming city in China. It's, you know, it was the traditional capital uh, before the war, World War II. Um, it, and that moved to Beijing. So there really is, and, and not only it's central uh, in China, but yeah, I mean, even as we broke ground on that, we had to change the blueprints because we had three live streaming studios. It was growing so fast, we had to stop Design 5. Um, and even now, I mean, it hasn't even been open for eight months. We're already renting other places in that area to expand those studios uh, as well, just because of how important now video content is. So what's really changing is how brands are presenting to the market. Um, branding is becoming even more important than it was before. But, you know, with the shift to online, what we're seeing actually is that you know, online ads, the inventory has not caught up with the demand. So prices are rising very, very quickly. Um, And in that case, you know, um, 
there's also a lot more offerings out there. So customer acquisition costs on performance marketing tactics have almost priced that out of being an acceptable tactic. So your videos, viral marketing, all of these things have become much more important. And that's definitely an area that WPIC um, is winning now and very concentrated on maintaining the industry advantage. The campus um, is great, but actually it's not even going to make it a year until it's full. And that's just how much growth in e-commerce has happened this year. So um, we'll be looking to double the size of it again um, and start construction early next year um, on, on the next one. Um, same area, uh, but it, 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 it's, it's one of the biggest challenges, certainly from WPIC's point of view, is to keep up with the growth in the industry. Um, but, you know, we've had a great uh, strategy of being able to track that talent that's been at those big agencies in Shanghai and Beijing just by using our big data platform and scraping resumes. What we're doing is we're looking for people that went either to high school or university in Nanjing and then offering them jobs to come back. And that's working out really well because most of those people are getting kind of sick of living in those cities and the costs that are there um, and are happy to come back uh, and join, you know, a really fast moving company, uh, fast growing companies. So a lot of these strategies have really worked out well for us. I mean, we're we're now, I think, one of the most desirable destinations as an employer uh, in China, certainly for the people that have some connection to Nanjing. Uh, and getting people to relocate into the city has also uh, pretty uh, been pretty easy. So the, the secret I know is out of the, uh, the cat's out of the bag. The secret's out is certainly about Nanjing. We're going to see a lot more players moving in there. Um, but we're, we're glad to have a head start. Um, and, and that city, again, I can't uh, speak highly, more highly of it and how good it's been to WPIC. Well, hopefully they hear that praise. Um, I think it's really smart what you're doing uh, with the analysis of the resumes. Um, having hired a few Chinese uh, people in the past, uh, myself in China, I know that um, decreasing friction from mom and dad um, is always a good play and bringing your children, uh, bringing their children back closer to uh, where the roost is um, has to be uh, a good play all around. So kudos to that. Let's look at something that was very optimistically uh, and a lot of people were getting really excited about. And that was the Ant Financial IPO. OK, it was expected to take place. It is still expected to take place. It's on hold right now. What are you expecting from that IPO? I know that that, you know, you you come from a, a financial background. It's in your family. Um, and I know you pay attention to this. What are you expecting from that I, IPO? And what is it about that organization that they just do so well that allows them to be omnipresent, omni integrated into the life of everybody in China? Well, certainly, um, it's all about the data. Um, again, when you know people's purchasing habits, and and I mean, it it is all electronic. Cash is just so dead here now. Um, you know, and this is even before I left. Um, you, you know, for those who know me, I, I do wear you know the the basic business Western business attire, which is blue jeans and collared shirt. Um, I had the same wad of cash in my back pocket for so long it was turning blue, like it was literally rubbing off on my jeans. And that must have taken months to tell you how absolutely literally nobody uses cash here at all, except for birthdays um, and gifts inside red envelopes. Like it is just, and even then, quite frankly, that's being done by WeChat now as well. So um, cash is totally dead. And that means the two major payment gateways, uh, Alipay and WePay 
are not only gathering the online data, but also the offline data. So they can, they've been able to track your online purchasing behavior for a long time, but now they can also see you ads based on what you're buying offline. Um, so it, it's really going to enhance their ability and their offerings to consumers. The data is just incredible. Um, I know there's been podcasts about lookalike traffic and things like that too, as well, but I mean, the geographical targeting capabilities that are available, um, you know, knowing what your, uh, dietary habits, what you like to eat. I mean, it, it, it's really all there. So they're going to be able to tailor offerings to this consumption base uh, very, very precisely. Um, you know, and, and this is something you're right. I, I do follow this uh, quite carefully. Uh, uh, I'm actually probably the ones that one of the only ones that read the initial Alibaba IPO uh, because I knew that Alipay was not included in it. So I sat it out. Um, but certainly if you were watching all the major news networks, they, basically said that Alipay was included in that. And it was very clear. I think it was, I won't even say page 82 now, that it wasn't. Um, I've read through this one as well. There's there's some of the things and features in Alipay and definitely with the work software that actually aren't included in this one as well. Um, so I'm seeing the same style of IP, IPO. But I mean, the thing is, is everybody and their dog is subscribed to it. So I, I mean, people understand what I understand for sure. I think this was one of the most subscribed IPOs in Hong Kong's history. Um, but again, a lot of misinformation in the media. I mean, people don't like to read these massive documents. They're not exciting for a lot of people. Um, but uh, the, it, a lot of a lot's in there. I mean, if, if people are going to read the prospectus, I think this one is something like 365 pages. Um, so it might be good to split it up between a few friends if it's something that you're interested in. But there's definitely parts and, and the, the work software uh, suite is one of them that aren't going to be included in this. Um, but I think in terms of also a lot of misinformation, um, a lot's being tied to uh, Jack Ma's speech at the regulators, um, and that's why this was banned. And I really don't see that being the case. Um, just the way things work over here, it's not as top-down as people would like you to believe. So I don't think this has anything to do with Jack Ma potentially saying something that was offensive to somebody. It really probably is more to do with reserve requirements. Um, and probably what they're more worried about is the peer-to-peer -peer lending part um, and the microfinancing part. And because there's been a lot of failures and a lot of fraud in that industry. So it probably does make sense that the regulars do want to have a crack at this before um, before they have an IPO. I think that makes a lot more sense. And they simply kiboshed it because of something he said uh, at a speech. I mean, he's he's been outspoken. He's always been outspoken. There's plenty of other ways that, to deal with them, um, especially considering, you know, there's probably a lot of influential people here that are tied into that IPO as well. So I don't believe the media reports in terms of why that's been postponed. I think this will go ahead um, once the regulators can find out exactly what the reserve requirements should be uh, for this company, because certainly they, are, you know, as much as they want to say they're a tech company, when you're giving loans um, and you're facilitating these types of financing, I'm sorry, but you are a financial institution, um, despite what you say, uh, you just are. So, and again, the biggest fraud, uh, we're just like three or four years out of, um, you know, the largest fraud in financial history here, uh, which was all to do with peer to peer lending. So, I would just let the regulators do their job, uh, make sure the reserve requirements are met, make sure there's not going to be a huge collapse that would be a massive loss of face for everybody involved, including the regulators. Um, and it'll probably go ahead. And at that point, you know, read the prospectus very carefully. If there's still value and you can get in at a, at a good pace, then um, yeah, you're, you're going to get in on a very solid company. 
We're seeing Bitcoin hitting new highs again, obviously, even as we record this November 9th. Um, I think we're, we're, we're clipping somewhere around $20,000 Canadian, you know, and then, you know, we saw PayPal come out and say that they are now going to be accepting Bitcoin or cryptocurrency as a payment, uh, Bitcoin, I think only for now. Do you see that through like what what it was the temperature today of of cryptocurrency in China? Um, I, it's almost unavoidable that it has to come at some point. You would think that it would come through uh, a financial institution like Ant Financial or their Alipay. Are you seeing anything on the ground with regards to cryptocurrency in China? Yeah, it, there has been a, a currency that's based on the renminbi that has actually been rolled out already. I think this is actually going to be more of a competitor in the long run to the SWIFT system for international transactions. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it probably, in terms of, I mean, your cryptocurrencies and, the, and the, the coins that are out there, I mean, there's a probably very different topics of conversation. Bitcoin is not going to be an accepted currency in China. I mean, it is still banned. I believe the mining of it is still legal in some places. I'm not quite up to speed on those laws. Um, but yes, crypto or electronic currencies, there's going to be a big place in China for those. And, you know, I think one of the things that's probably exciting for the government here is the fact of not making them anonymous like Bitcoin, um, but actually making them tied to, to financial transactions and henceforth being able to eliminate corruption. So it's going to make it a lot harder for you to bribe officials if there's going to be an electronic record of that payment going between those two parties. So if you know where the renminbi, it's, I mean, essentially take a bill and then everybody before they have to spend it has to write their name and number on it. And that's basically what's being rolled out here. So from a corruption point of view, there's obviously some pretty big benefits to, to something like that. So almost from a completely different uh, angle than how a Bitcoin is being rolled out, for example. And by the way, Alipay does transact in, in that digital currency right now. We just recorded Bruno Schiavi, who is one of the founders of Uncle Bud's Hemp and CBD, and they are aggressively going into China now as well. What would you say about that sector in China for those that may want to follow their lead and potentially think about going to China in in that industry? Well, I got to say that I'm actually very impressed with how the regulators have handled this. And it's something I totally did not expect because in terms of, you know, there's this connotation certainly with CBDs and how it comes from the cannabis industry, because there is a lot of connections. I mean, quite frankly, you have Snoop Dogg with that line too. And and we know why that's being marketed. I mean, uh, uh, who were those? Two? Uh, Cheech and Chong, uh, one of those guys as well. So with that connotation, I would have expected China to stare very clear from it. Um, but the regulators have actually put in a framework, as long as there is completely no THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient, the products are being allowed in. So we're now actually quite bullish on it. But before, I mean, even other people had uh, who were getting into it had actually left China to deal with other parts of Asia um, that, that were going to accept it. So kudos on them for, for getting on board so quickly. But, but yes, I think the, the growth that has gone throughout the world, I mean, trends are global now. They don't aren't usually isolated to any one geographical region. So uh, they've probably made very good decisions on, on coming in. And certainly Tmall is, uh, is assisting them by giving the market access. Tremendously and allowing them to maintain their branding. Uh, which I know uh, for Bruno was very was very key. So again, another episode for everybody to look forward to. We're actually going to be dropping that 
Oh, that by the time this goes out, that will have been dropped. But that is going out uh, November 10th, Tuesday, November 10th. So everybody should be uh, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that one. It was it was pretty awesome. Uh, OK, uh, last question. I just want to ask a little bit about electric vehicles and battery technology. Um, I know that uh, China is really racing out in front. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that industry? What's going on? Uh, some of the investments, uh, just like how many dollars are being poured into that innovation technology right now? Well, tons. Um, there's tons. And with, it, you know, with the type of approach, it really has been sort of the nuclear money bomb uh, approach for investment. We always knew there was going to be a lot of failures in the industry. Um, you know, some of them have, have, are probably ready to wrap up. But, you know, when the government makes it, you know, 10 times easier to get a license plate for an electric car than a gas car, um, you know, that transition was going to happen very quickly. Um, I think Elon Musk sees it, you know, he gets a lot of heat for making a lot of comments, but, you know, he comes to China, he works with his Chinese colleagues. He sees a lot of the excitement and energy that I do working here on a daily basis. Um, you know, really enjoyable bunch. Um, of course, you know, you, you can't say that publicly, but um, it's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of energy and a lot of excitement. The engineers are, are really on a purpose here. Um, Regarding self-driving, we do see this these cars around um, a lot of parts of Beijing. This is probably a tough part. You have, you know, not uh, uh, a lot of clearly enforceable rules here on the road today. Um, and then again, there's there's issues with 5G and the energy consumption and, and being able to roll that out. And was that really the right standard for self-driving cars in general? And that's not just going to be a problem um, in China. I think the whole world is starting to understand that now as well. Um, you know, I, I personally have my own takes on, on the standard um, probably not being the end all and be all of, of what everybody thought it was going to be. Um, increased processing power not unloading as much of the computations to data centers as they probably thought, which is what the low latency comes in for. Um, so I don't think they're taking the lead in, in self-driving. I think Tesla, really, if you look at what they've done, I mean, all the cars are basically been equipped with data monitors, gathering information, you know, simulating uh, self-driving while people have actually been driving them for many, many years. Um, they're going to be the clear industry winner once they decide to roll that out. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Just again, in, in sheer raw data terms. Awesome. Okay. Jacob Cook, founder, CEO of WPIC Marketing Technologies. Thank you very much for coming on the show and giving us your uh, quick take on what it's been like uh, being back in China now after being back in Canada for eight months, going through quarantine, giving us a lay of the land and uh, a great look ahead. And uh, may we all survive 11-11 uh, here. Always great to talk to you, Todd. Thanks a lot. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.